You're listening to the Just Powers Podcast. I'm Dr. Sheena Wilson, Principal Investigator of the Just Powers National Research Team and a Professor of Energy Humanities at the University of Alberta. On the Just Powers Podcast, I invite you to think together with myself and my guests about climate justice issues and socially just approaches to energy transition. Today, my guests and I join you from Treaty 6 Territory and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 4 in what is now called Edmonton. The province of Alberta is the traditional territory and home of 48 different Indigenous nations. The city of Edmonton, where my guests and I work and live, is situated on lands long ago stolen from Papas Chase and Métis peoples, displacing them through means and methods that led to the loss of culture and lives as part of our nation's history of genocidal practices. Energy and natural resources play a starring role in this history. So as we talk about energy transition and climate justice, we invite you to think together with us, with your communities and your spheres of influence about how to take action on climate in ways that at a minimum respond to the calls of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, but that exceed those calls in order to make meaningful energy policy and infrastructure decisions, as well as personal shifts that will shape our society and our lives in more equitable, intersectionally feminist and decolonial ways. This episode was originally recorded in February of 2021, when I sat down with Christian Felsky and Tom Lumsden, two project managers from the Blatchford Housing Development, a net zero community conceived of more than a decade ago that is now, finally, housing its first residents and will become a full-fledged neighborhood over the next 20 years. The mission of Blatchford is to create a world-class net zero community that brings the city of Edmonton into alignment with municipal and global climate targets. The Blatchford site is unique the world over for the fact that it is located minutes from city centre. Why were there 220 hectares of land available in the centre of a 21st century urban metropolis? Well, it was formerly an airport, now closed. It's a rarity, so we better get it right. Listen on to hear my conversation about where the neighbourhood plan for Blatchford has gotten so far from Christian Felsky, the Director of Renewable Energy Systems for the City of Edmonton, who manages the Blatchford District Energy System, and Tom Lumsden, the Development Manager for Blatchford. Hello, and thanks to both of you for sitting down with me today. To get started, could you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Thank you, Sheena. My name is Christian Felsky. As you said, I'm, I'm working for the City of Edmonton. I'm currently the Director of Renewable Energy Systems. Originally, I'm from Germany. I'm a civil engineer, and I moved over in a long career in waste management into the renewable energy sector uh, about four or five years ago. And the first project I was working on was the Blatchford project. That's great. I, I didn't realize that Blatchford was the first renewable project that you'd worked on. Tom, could you give us a bit of an introduction and let us know how you got involved with Blatchford? For sure. I'm, as you said, Tom Lumsden. I'm the development manager for the Blatchford Redevelopment Project. I have a history of working in land development, so that's my area of expertise. I've been with this project for two and a half years and essentially trying to get it financially sustainable community and in addition to socially and the green aspect. Yeah, in many ways, a project like this, a community like this is really about building out a vision for the future and what we want our cities to look like. So I'm wondering how your decisions in the project now are literally designing the lifestyle of future communities. I mean, specifically at Blatchford, but also others that could model themselves on it. What does daily life look like in Blatchford, say in 10 years since it's still in development? It's a good, good, good question. And you're right, Blatchford is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, as you pointed out. 
536 acres, 10 minutes from the center of the city. We're building a community, looking at it from a social perspective, where people want to stay, work, and live. As a developer, we can do things like zoning, encouraging certain building types, building amenities within the community that keep people in the community so they don't get in their car drive away. It's right on the LRT, so we're encouraging sustainable transit options. The fact that it's within the middle of the city, there's amenities all around it, but we're also going to bring amenities to within in the land themselves. Yeah, I want to come back to that and talk more about these core features that make a daily life more sustainable, you know, with the LRT and how zoning can build sustainability into communities. Zoning sounds like a boring topic, but really it shapes communities and makes it possible to live more sustainably without individuals having to think about it all the time themselves. So uh, maybe for a minute, though, we'll turn to Christian and hear about how Blatchford is being made sustainable in infrastructural ways. Um, Blatchford is using a district energy system. So Christian, can you tell us what district energy is and how it's central to Blatchford's net zero aims? Yeah, sure. Maybe I start um, when this project was conceived and, and the vision our city council set for it. And it's a, it was quite a, an ambitious vision at the time. And now, like 10 or 12 years later, it's actually quite amazing how valid and how modern it is. In terms of the environmental footprint or the energy questions, council set quite ambitious vision in terms of this being a carbon neutral community being entirely supplied with renewable energy. So this is a really, really high target. And over the first years of the development, the team which were working on this project was looking, is it feasible? How are we achieving this? Is this also financially sustainable? And after a bit of a search and looking at different technologies, emerging technologies, I mean, we're not in, in reinventing the wheels. There's a lot of cool projects, a lot of technologies across the globe. We set our, our, our sights on what we call a district energy sharing system. System. District energy systems, in short, are uh, energy resilient local or regional energy supply systems, usually with one or now more energy plants, distribute usually hot water or warm water, in the case of Blackshirt ambient loop temperature water to buildings which are close by and which are connected through this energy system. So they're providing heating and cooling energy. In some cases, also electricity. In Blatchford, we looked at the typical energy input into a home in Edmonton, Alberta. I mean, we're in a really cold spell right now. So the majority of the energy input is actually coming from, from natural gas into our homes, which is a fossil fuel. And the goal is to, to get away from fossil fuels and do, do things in a more environmental friendly way, leading to a net zero carbon community. So the district energy sharing system basically sharing energy between buildings, energy input through renewable energy sources such as geo-exchange or in the next phase of Blackshirt, the sewer heat recovery system. So taking that heat which is in the ground or in our sewer and utilizing this directly in the community by distributing it, but also having the ability to share energy between buildings. You know, I'm sure many of our listeners know what the Paris Agreement means for our climate targets. But one way that I like to explain it is that we have to cut our carbon footprints, so our energy usage, in half by 2030, which is only nine years away at this point. And then we have to cut it in half every decade following that until 2050. So that's just like a simple layman's math in terms of what is needed. So how does district energy in Blatchford help us meet our climate targets? 
Great point, great question. As you know, our city, our city council stated a climate emergency. It recognizes the need for climate action, right? And climate action happened on very many fields, such as from buildings, transportation, and how we deal with our waste, how we do, how we're providing our energy. So the implementation of district energy is one of the key actions in terms of meeting our climate ambitions in the city of Edmonton. We now have the, the first stage of the Blatchford district energy system in place. We're working on a, another node, which is in the downtown core. And with the, the community energy transition strategy, there is a goal to implement more of these district energy systems. It's not the only solution to get there, as you, as you know, the overall effort to get to 1.5 degree includes very many different actions on very many different fronts. And, and you're right, our time is running out uh, to deal with these. So Blatchford as a project is, is probably, I wouldn't say a model community, but one way we hope that ideas which are generated for Blatchford can kind of like swept across the, the area into other areas of the city. And, and it doesn't need to be the whole concept, but some ideas and hopefully some ideas around the energy supply and how we're using energy and how we're generating energy. Yeah, I have so many questions coming to my mind. Um, is the Blatchford District Energy System already net zero? Yes, it is. If, if you're looking at the boundary, so it's important. We, we are a council put in a place of a municipal utility to run and operate the system. So the energy input into to the district energy as we speak right now is a net zero. But the net zero goal actually for the community is broader than just the district energy system. So we're dealing with electricity supply, we're dealing with plug loads, uh, um, we're dealing with other sort of like emissions. So from a district energy perspective, we are, we've reached our goals, but our vision is, is bigger than that. Right, right. Christian, can you tell us who owns Blatchford? Because a project like this takes a lot of capital investment and developers need to know the communities they build will sell. So it's risky to create something cutting edge that people may or may not be ready for. So Blatchford's a really interesting project in terms of ownership, both of the district energy system in a time when so much of our energy infrastructure has been privatized, but also the listeners on Just Powers are interested in who owns and who benefits from the ownership of energy systems. Where do the profits go? Into the corporate bank accounts or do those benefits feed back into the community in different ways that could recalibrate our power hierarchies and make life a little, you know, a little more sustainable, a little more just, a little more equitable for people? Blatchford is unique in a way that the city is a developer. So Tom works on behalf of the, the city to develop the land. And also the utility is a municipal owned utility. So that's an opportunity our council has taken care of or has put in place to have this utility be municipal owned, which basically means we're owned by the city, we're regulated by our city council. So in terms of setting our rates, setting our policies or bylaws, we need to go to our council. Council has taken the approach to uh, take control of the vision of the land, to not uh, giving it away, rather have a bit of a control about it, that we're do everything possible in order to achieve the vision and not deviate from that with a little bit of a better control. Now that might change in the future, we will see, but this is the initial setup of the of the land development and the energy utility as well. So that's interesting because EPCOR is the city-owned utility company and EPCOR's sole stakeholder is the city of Edmonton. So can you explain to listeners what the difference is between having the city own this system directly and EPCOR owning and managing it. 
What what is the different relationship there? The relationship between city and EPCOR is not a not an easy one to understand. I don't, I'm not claiming that I hundred uh, percent understand it, but City Council is the shareholder of EPCOR. It's the city utilities company. At the time when the idea of Blashford came about, various governance models were reviewed, which could be you know, any private utility, which could include EPCOR. EPCOR's line of businesses at this stage does not include district energy. Um, they do work in the electricity sector, the water, the wastewater sector. They're expanding. Their role is likely to increase in the downtown district energy project. So, but at this time, the decision was made by council to keep this initially municipally owned. The relationship in in action is not too much different because EPCOR owns some utilities which are also owned and uh, regulated by city council, and that's not different than than for our work. Certainly, council has set an expectation that once the utility becomes more mature, um, there might be a point where we need to look at a third party either operation partner or, or, or just a third party partner to 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 operate this growing utility we're as you said we're right in the at the start of, of the land development there are a few people living there they are connected and and hopefully from now on we're going to be growing more and more and I know it was a really expensive project to set up but over the long term it should become quite financially sustainable one would imagine is there a way in which the returns from the community will feed back into the Blatchford community or maybe other sustainable projects? Is there a vision for that? Yes, you're right. It's a very expensive project. If it would be the cheapest way for generating energy, I think I would I would argue everybody would would do it. It's a more sustainable way. But like any any utility in itself, there are high initial infrastructure costs. Like we need to set up piping infrastructure or generation infrastructure. And the, the cost will be coming in through more customers connected to the system, right? Now we're just starting. So there is a funding gap currently available. Right now, the utility is not, not set up to be a dividend generating utility. In the long run, there are some significant benefits, um, more on the customer sides when you compare to where fossil fuels costs will go, where the price of carbon might go. It's actually, you know, now with increased carbon tax, it's actually driving a bit faster to that point. So right now, the the, the utility is not set up to, to be a dividend generator. Uh, it's set up to achieve the vision of council. And that's, that's council's prerogative to change if they, if they feel they want to change. Yeah, we've talked before about community energy projects, and it makes me wonder if a project like this couldn't be later community-owned or maybe owned as a cooperative. I mean, that would be an interesting way to see the transition of ownership play out at a different moment when it, you know, when it moves away from the city. But that's just an idea that just came to me right now. Um, let's talk to Tom now for a moment about different ways to meet our climate targets, because it's not all about district energy systems. It's also about building codes and sexy things like more insulation and fewer outside walls. It's about densification of living and walkable cities. And Edmonton's new city plan is actually organized around the vision for 15-minute communities. And I'm wondering if you could speak to some of the other ways besides the district energy system that we're going to be meeting our, our carbon targets and our climate targets with a project like Blatchford. Yeah, as I, as I identified, I'm acting as the developer. So those are the aspects that I can influence. The vision for Blatchford is 30,000 Edmontonians living there in a sustainable way. So to give reference, if this was a suburban community, there might be eight to 10,000 people. So it's three times the amount of people living in the same amount of space. So that's one one aspect is just 
using the land in a more efficient manner. The second thing is we we look at, like I said before, the, the social aspect. How can we keep people in the community without getting getting in their cars and driving away? So making lifestyle choices, you know, maybe only having one car, maybe having no cars, having amenities within the community. In stage one, we've built a linear park that has a playground, community gardens, uh, plaza area that's going to be flooded in the winter for skating. So things right outside their front door that they can use to to kind of choose to live a more sustainable way and with their neighbors. Just to clarify, are there any single family homes in Blatchford? The the unwritten rule right now, and I always use the unwritten rule, uh, is no, there's no single family homes in Blatchford. The reason I say it's the unwritten rule, density is what we need, right? We need 12 to 15,000 units, which represents the 30,000 Edmontonians. If we could achieve that in a unique way, and again, 20 to 25 years is a long time before we're done this, and we're going to keep looking at new ways of doing things as we go. That's part of our objectives. If we could do some detached homes that still achieve the density and the and the climate targets, then I don't see why we wouldn't kind of look into that and maybe do it. And when you say townhomes, you mean row houses that share walls so that they're energy efficient? Is that the definition? Yeah, right now the zoning actually identifies you have to have at least three attached. So no duplexes, they have to be three plexes at minimum. In stage one, there's three, four, and five, and there's one that's actually going to be seven. Yes, it's such an important point because Edmonton is organized around the single family home and single family homes are terribly energy inefficient. And then when you have to retrofit them, you have to retrofit all of the exterior walls. Really, the best thing is to share walls with a neighbor. The best way to be energy efficient is to have fewer exterior walls. So, so yeah, that's, that's great. That's great to hear. I'm wondering, because Edmonton has been organized around the single-family home, and we have that idea of success, that old unsustainable ideal of the good life being a family with a house and a car, or maybe two cars in the garage, and I'm wondering if there's a lot of appetite for living in a community like Blatchford, or living in more net-zero, dense, urban settings here in Edmonton. What's your sense? I think what we found from the beginning, like we have builders that we're working with, as Christian said, there's people living there. Uh, there's been there's been no lack of interest. People always ask, you know, what what's our competition? And I mentioned suburban growth. I don't think we're we compete with them because that's a whole different way of living on the edge of the city versus downtown. You think of the most dense community in Edmonton as Oliver. We're not that far from Oliver. I, I sometimes describe Blatchford as a Oliver kind of development only purposeful from the beginning. If you think of the evolution of Oliver, it was single family homes, some multifamily, but then those single family homes got bought up, torn down, and more dense buildings being put on board. Blatchford, we're starting from that spot. We're going to be a dense community right from the beginning. And the builders have had good success with sales of the townhomes that have been built. We actually have show homes open, which draws another level of interest. So everything that's been sold to date was basically sold on paper. Now there's opportunity for people to come in, see what it's going to look like to live there, see what the building's going to look like. And since they've opened their show homes, which only one opened late last year, they've had a number of sales immediately, which is not winter time, is not typical sales season. So the fact that that's happened, I would suggest, yes, there is lots of interest in the community and people living this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of times when we talk about our climate targets, there's this real focus on decarbonization, as though if we meet our climate targets, we'll have somehow addressed climate change. 
But of course, climate change is an unwieldy problem. So, you know, we, we need to do more than just lower our carbon footprint. We need to have food security and we need to look after all the members of our communities and have diverse communities and affordable housing. So can you speak to some of the ways that Blatchford is addressing these other complex issues that are also part of addressing the climate challenge? Yeah, like, I, like I'd mentioned before, actually in stage one, we have community gardens within the linear park that we've built. Um, we're, the typical community needs 10% uh, parks in Blatchford because we're so dense, we're going to have 15%. So another opportunity for people to get out in the open space. Um, we've, um, like I said, we, we're going to have, right now, the, the things that are occupied, the, the units that are occupied are townhomes. But in stage one, we also have uh, multi-sites where there's townhouse type sites, but on a more condo type situation. So they can be more dense. And then we have apartment style. So there's opportunity for different housing types, which will obviously come with different price tags. So addressing, you know, every it's a, it's a place for everybody to live. Uh, we are going to achieve the city's objectives of 16% affordable housing. Uh, it's going to be intersprinkled throughout the community. We're still working on the plan as to how that's going to happen, but it's going to be something that we we are going to achieve. As you said off the beginning, we have decades of development ahead of us. This is a lot of land to work through. I always say 20 to 25 years. And as you said, nine years from now is 2030. So it's market dependent, of course, as well, because that's what we're selling. We're selling homes. By 2030, we'll, we'll have a good idea of how this is going to impact. So what's the definition of affordable housing that you're working with? Affordable housing is one of those terms. It's kind of like climate justice for which there's about 20 different operating definitions. So I'm just wondering if you can define how you use the term affordable housing. It's a, it's a great question. And we're still working kind of on our affordable housing strategy. We're working with the group at the city. I, you know, the one definition, because you, you talk to 10 different people, they have 10 different definitions. One, one I think of, it's 20% below market. So me acting as the developer on behalf of the city that's, you know, I'm selling land to a builder. One way we could achieve it is to have a group that will achieve the targets for affordable housing. And then the, the price of the land would be at 80% of market when we sell it to them. That's not, we, we haven't officially defined what, what we're going to do in Blatchford, but that's just one component, probably the, um, the easiest one to define right now. Yeah, so it takes 20 to 25 years to design a neighborhood like this. And we only have 20 to 25 years to meet our climate targets, which puts a fine point on something I try to tell people regularly that when they want to wait for the next generation of tech before investing in climate solutions. And, and that's that we really need to meet our climate targets with the tech we have right now, because tech under development is not going to be on the market for another decade. So Blatchford is an example of that. I mean, I hope when people are listening, they, they can really hear how that that it's necessary to just use the tech we have right now. Um, Blatchford needs to be designed now to meet our 2050 climate targets. So we need to be really bold. We can't, you know, kind of, I don't know, mess mess, mess around and, and think, oh, people aren't quite ready right now. We, we need to be designing for the future. So living with an idea of we want that, what we want that future to look like. So on that note, what have you learned about the kinds of partnerships that ne- that are needed to do this kind of work? You've you've talked a lot about homeowners and home buyers because these homes are for sale. But given economic uncertainties, 
the next generation may not be able to really afford to buy homes. So I'm wondering, what is the role of the individual homeowner in the future? What role does the city play? What role do other levels of government play? And when you imagine all of this falling into place, what if it didn't take 20 to 25 years because we didn't have to rely on all of the homes being sold, right? Like, I mean, what if homes were city-owned and rented or even subsidized? Or what if we could do things more quickly? What kinds of partnerships do you have that you've learned from? Or what partnerships have you learned you needed that you don't have? So I guess what I'm asking is, in a fantasy blue skies world, what could make a project like this happen in, say, 10 years? Because we could actually physically build Blatchford in 10 years if there was the money for it. Yeah, we. I would. I, I always say I'm not going to build stuff unless I can sell it because that's that's the the big component of the financial sustainability. We have partners already. I will suggest with our builders that have have bought into the vision and have built the homes that are existing today. I I said I spent a quite a quite a long time in the private industry, so there's lots of other developers builders out there that we could engage with who will bring new ideas, new um, innovations different ways of doing business to the table. And there's been lots of conversations. I think now that we have, like I said, people living there, it's a huge, huge step for the community and a, and a good message to everybody that A, the district energy system works. B, there's people living there. It's a real community now. So there's, I've, I've felt, and it was actually over Christmas, there was an article in the paper. And I will suggest it was the first one that was had zero negative comments about Blatchford being slow different things that the media likes to profess. And I received a number of phone calls and inquiries from my private industry friends after that to like, hey, let's talk. Let's see what, you know, they've been paying attention to it the whole time. Now they're, they're realizing, yeah, it's a real, it's a real thing. It's a real thing that we can do together. And I, again, coming from the private side, the city's acting as a developer at the beginning. And right now the plan is to do that all the way through. There's no reason that we couldn't take components and sell it to other companies and have them achieve the goals that we want to achieve, but in their own their own way. So that would definitely speed up the way Blatchford gets developed. I can't emphasize enough. Like I said, it's a market-driven kind of community. I don't know that we could come in and just build everything because why would you build it if there weren't people who were ready to live there? That's interesting that you say there's been a bit more positive spin lately. And and I also sense that, that there's more of an appetite for this kind of community and this kind of living now than there was, say, five years ago. And the project's really been around, at least in, in as a concept or an idea, since the mid-2000s. I don't know about what, two, 2006, 2007, something like that? Is that when the idea first came to be? Well, I always talk about 2008 and nine is when city council started talking about and they they passed that the airport was going to close. I'd like to address you know how long it's taken. So 2008 or nine, it was the 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 idea of closing the airport happened. 2010, you know the vision came out, and I, I I have to admit I was working in the private industry at the time. I knew the airport was closing. I knew there was a new community coming, but the vision from 2010 that 30,000 Edmontonians. 100% renewable, carbon neutral. You know, Alberta is a oil and gas province, like it or not. The fact that the city council at that time voted that this would be the vision for this land, it's it's amazing. So 2013, November 30th, 2013, the last airplane took off. So it's really been seven years of going from literally an active airport to people living there. And it's 
I I could give you examples of suburban areas where it's a farmer's field, where a private company doing whatever they want, you know, status quo, taking better part of 10 years to get from a farmer's field to people living there. It's It's been an idea that's been around for a while. I'm impressed that, like I said, city council at that time, climate crisis wasn't wasn't something people were talking about. You know, things were booming in Alberta, but they decided this was going to be a net zero community is, is quite awesome. I, I know that it's received some criticism for taking a long time, but just to be clear, that wasn't my intended point. These things take a long time, right? I mean, I think about the, the La Cité Résiliente project that I've been running in the Bonnie Dune neighborhood where Just Powers and Ask for a Better World have hosted multiple community consultations and been creating a vision for a community energy project and where we've also been involved in the retrofit at La Cité itself, what we call future-proofing on that project. So we, we've already been at it for two years, and it takes time to sort these things out. So so don't think my point, my point was that Blatchford's taking a long time, but more that these things take a long time, and we don't have a lot of time. So we need to act fast, but we also need to be thoughtful and meaningful. So, you know, how do we speed them up? How do we do things radically different to get 30,000 people living there more quickly, but do it in a good way? And I'm not asking because the project itself is moving slowly, but because there's just really no time left and we have to do things differently. But, you know, I do think that the appetites have changed. The The attitudes towards renewables have changed in the province a lot in the last 13 or 14 years. And I just want to hear more about whether you hear a shift in attitude from your potential buyers. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Of course, it's um right now, I think we have seven seven units occupied. I, I know some of them that I've, I've spoken to, it's Blatchford, and that's the only place they want to be. They've, they bought into the to the idea of the community. Our builder partners, same thing. It's they believe in the vision. They love what we're doing. They're figuring it out. You know, we have architectural controls, which is not dissimilar to the private industry. We have a green building code, which means they're building the homes in a different way than they would. Traditionally, it's, it's above the Canadian building code in terms of energy use. But we, and we're doing that through a contract. We're not doing it as a regulator, but as the developer. So yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's things that people have to think about. And, but there's definitely positive feedback as to where we're going with this community. And they truly, truly do buy into the vision and what we're trying to achieve. Christian, I think you were going to jump in there when I was talking about shifting attitudes towards renewables. So how do you think attitudes have shifted in the time that you've been here in Edmonton? Lots of thoughts, but I think the point I wanted to interject, or not to interject, but maybe to add, is the the leadership of the city in terms of climate change. Because like, the city can only control a very limited percentage of greenhouse gas emissions they do, but they they've come and wanting to play a leadership role, which hopefully at some point drives into the into the other sectors, right? Like the private sector and the industry sector, and the same can be said about district energy, because a municipality sometimes has to start things, even if they don't look, you know, promising or make a rate of return. And I think the ability or the opportunity for Blatchford is, is that if the city kicks this off and we're doing more and more of these systems and, and one of the other projects I've been working on is, is, is trying to figure out how can we facilitate more, more private investment into these energy systems, right? How, what can we do for a developer who wants to come into Edmonton or Alberta to put up something like that and, and make it worthwhile and, and, and 
there's a lot of drivers. Um, the carbon tax is, is only one, which is a significant drivers for these type of systems. And currently, municipal governments are cash strapped, right? There's not a lot of money to go around and to start things. It's it's sometimes the role of a municipality. I I believe that and. And the hope is that that this triggers a bit of other people buy in. And as long as we can facilitate and get partners like you mentioned a few, right? Right, the, the provincial government, the federal government, private utility companies, others, right, developers, right, to come into Blatchford and do this, or to come then into Edmonton and do this the same thing. Right. It's 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 incredibly important that we do this. And and from my experience in the municipal sector, is is the city is probably the best engine to kickstart this, but other people have to come together and do it. You make a great point. You know, people don't always want to hear it, but there are no magic magic solutions, right? We we need we need to have a lot of experiments. And some of those experiments are expensive. And fact, the first time you try something, it's always expensive. It's really interesting to me that people expect these projects to be profitable right away because they can't be. At best, we can learn from them and improve on them, but why do they need to be profitable? The energy transition to a hydrocarbon society was not actually cheap, and oil and gas is still subsidized. The move to fossil fuels was about controlling the energy source and therefore controlling labor and production. If you had a coal-powered factory in the center of London, you could exploit the urban poor and have shifts of people working 24 hours a day. If workers didn't like the conditions, you could just hire the next guy. And the factory could be productive 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? So the move to fossil fuel was about controlling the energy source. So you could control labor and you didn't have to rely on factors like the flows of water at the mill wheel on the river or any other environmental or social factors. And so now people expect to shift to sustainable energy sources to be profitable from the get-go. And it's, it's I mean, it's just totally unrealistic. The reality is the bottom dollar can't always be the deciding factor. And, you know, our municipality has taken a lot of leadership on this issue. I think sometimes Edmontonians aren't really aware, especially because we're buried here in the center of one of the biggest petroleum economies on the planet, that we actually have quite a forward-thinking city council going way back. And leadership has been shown at multiple levels. But everyone needs to take on leadership in whatever ways we can, right? That'll be different for everybody. For some, it'll be about investing into their homes, and for others, it'll be about investing into community projects. You know, for my students, it might be making music on climate change or studying these topics or working to change hearts and minds. But, you know, we can't just wait for the solar panels to be a cheap deal or the government to offer another subsidy. Kristen, do you want to explain how the carbon tax is a driver for this? Because the carbon tax gets a lot of bad rap. So how is the carbon tax a driver for something like a district energy project? Yeah, so the carbon tax is basically taxing fossil fuel and environmental impacts. It's basically carboning how you pollute, right? And by offsetting fossil fuels with what we do in terms of like, you know, renewable energy sources, your business as usual point basically changes. Like, so while a fossil fuel energy product gets more expensive, this makes the ability to implement things like the district energy sharing system in Blatchford so much more attractive also financially, because at some point you're going to get an even playing field here in terms of energy costs. Like right now, natural gas is very cheap in, in Alberta, as you know, and it's our traditional heating fuel. Now we can compare with that with these type of systems, but the, the ability of 
of the carbon tax and the impact it does will at some point achieve a bit more level playing field in terms of costs. And then people will probably think twice about what they want to implement. Are there any lessons that you can share with the community uh, if others are thinking of an energy transition? You know, we have communities working on these types of things. Um, and we organized this podcast series, hashtag Climate Ready Yeg, to basically say, hey, look, what great things are going on here in Edmonton. So whether it's the North Glenora development or the La Cité Retrofit or Blatchford, um, are there any lessons that you can share with us? Are there, there transferable lessons from Blatchford that can be used by other communities, that can be maybe scaled for larger or smaller projects, or that can be adapted to new communities being designed or communities that need retrofitting? I'm sure there are. I, I don't know a lot about the Bonnie Dune project, so I, I will claim ignorance, but I'm sure there's there's certain things that we're doing, like like I mentioned before, we have our green building code, we call it. So in every house, there's a heat pump. So if there's certain things like that that you're looking for in Bonnie Dune or even the way we're, if there's any infill or if you're redoing the way the buildings are using energy, there's obviously, we're, we're starting from scratch. So I think we we're, we have an easier job because you're not retrofitting things, but certain certain aspects of our home building that we're doing that you could probably take to make to make the energy use less. Well, we are not specifically greenfield because we're not out in the suburbs. It's really an open space for us to do. We're we're developing like a brand new community in the middle of the city. It's um it's a great opportunity, but there's we're not like putting new infrastructure into existing uh, right-of-ways and things like that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the barriers to transition is the building code. So it takes several years to redo the building codes. And from what I understand, Edmonton revamped building codes not too long ago, but no one likes change. So there was, there's always some pressure on governments not to make any radical shifts. Um, energy efficiencies that buyers might want in theory, but are unglamorous, can easily get edited out of building plans in favor of nicer aesthetic choices. So um, is it not true that part of the reason Blatchford can be built to be at a net zero standard is that it has its own building code um, and that that standard's not that easy to translate to the rest of the city? Is that is that also part of this the situation here? Yeah. And, and I mentioned it before. The reason we can do it is because we're contractually selling um, land to builders. So when the builders buy from us, they're agreeing to adhere to our green building code. If we were the city as the regulator, like we're the city as the developer doing that, if we're the city as the regulator, they don't have to agree. Well, they just have to agree to the Canadian Building Code or the Alberta Codes. So it's it's a step above that. But those codes are coming up. And you mentioned next week you're going to talk about the North Glenora Project. Peter Amarongan, who was part of that, I've been to, to lots of sessions with him. And he's talked about, you know, we're, we're close anyway. New homes being built or our green building code is ahead. And it's going to continue to be ahead, but eventually those two two are going to overlap, and eventually it'll be houses are being built as well as they have to be built to uh, achieve kind of a low energy use. So I guess something that people can ask for is uh, they can put pressure on the regulators for building codes to make sure that we're getting those standards very quickly, because the real win if you're buying a home is that you're building that home to the best standard possible right now. Otherwise, you'll be retrofitting a brand new home in just a few years. And a brand new home costs more, right? So it's one thing to retrofit my old house, but it's another thing to have to retrofit a brand new home built in 2021. 
So I suppose, like, I suppose that's the place or a place for action or pressure because people are always looking to take action and asking me what can be done. So putting pressure on issues like this where home buyers end up paying twice if they build a new home now and it's not being met to build the, to, it's not being built to meet the climate targets is one way people can take some action. Go ahead, Christian. No, the other point I wanted to mention when you're talking about energy retrofits, which is just looking at our energy supply systems, is another way which has always been overlooked because people say, okay, I have to I have to remodel my home to get the efficiency we need. If you're looking at an overall GHG intensity target, the other way to tackle this is supply low carbon energy. So in an existing neighborhood, like you said, like Bonnie Dune or others in the city, it might actually be more financially feasible to, in order to, to, to achieve your GHG intensity goals, is can be a combination of putting or building a more energy efficient home or re- retrofitting your home, but also at the same time looking at your energy supply. Where is it coming from? And that's, that's I think, what the beauty of Blatchford is and the beauty of other opportunities for this low carbon energy systems. You can achieve the same thing many different ways. And, and one way is to re- retrofit your home. The other way is, is to supply low carbon or net zero energy. Or it, maybe it's a combination of both. City of Vancouver has captured this, right? Like they set a, a GHG goals. I think New York and Toronto has done the same, right? And, and leaves it up for developers or home builders or community developers to see how are we going to get there. It can be very many different ways, like we're saying, and whatever the most feasible and probably the most efficient, financially efficient way is to get there that we will see. So it's not always the building or not always looking at the retrofit, right? It's it's a great way to get there, but people also, and the beauty of this district energy systems is that it can tackle this from an energy source. The the disadvantages in an established community is like what Tom Tom says, laying the pipe, right? You know, digging up the roads again to put the pipe in. So there are there are advantages and disadvantages. That makes me think of two things. So solar panels are a huge symbol of transition, but they provide electricity, so they don't heat our homes. And in Blatchford, the heating of homes is already looked after because you have the district energy system. But who provides electricity to the homes? Are they on the regular grid? Tom or maybe Christian? How, how, I don't know who should answer that, but how does that look? It, well, we, we both have components to answering this. It is, it is EPCOR. Christian can speak more to it about the regulations in, in Alberta in terms of how we can control power generation within the community. We've talked, I think you talked a little bit about community generation, and that's something we're looking at. Do we introduce a homeowners association within Blatchford? that could be a vehicle for that type of thing. But yeah, at the beginning, it is on the EPCOR grid. But some of the builders right off the hop are net zero. They've added the solar panels to their buildings. So they will offset the amount of energy they're going to use over the year. I think what the district energy connection does is it eases or it simplifies the way to get to net zero carbon, right? On, on an effective home. Yes, the homes have to be still connected to the EPCOR grid. What Tom was referring to is the some regulatory pieces which come into place over the last year, like which provides the community opportunities for community generation systems, right? Like to to have communities being basically their own power plant, putting that power, that electricity back into the grid and offset their own. Alberta has a very 
difficult regulatory system for electricity, right? So, but there are some tools we want to see if they fit into Blackshirt in terms of like community generation. But we have to establish a community first to do that. And, and maybe there's something we'll look at because the piece the district energy sharing system doesn't cover is the electricity, right? And that might be a, an opportunity or a tool for us to cover that piece to really achieve our, our vision for the community. You made a comment at the very beginning, Tom. You said something about how some of your major competitors, which may not really be competitors depending on what people are looking for, are the suburbs, right? And when people go to the suburbs, they have an idea of what they're going to get. They have their hockey rink. They have their park. They have their local school, maybe a mall. You know, they have grocery stores and the big box stores. And in, in many ways, you know, these these communities are also 15-minute communities, but people are paying a lot less for their homes because they are commuting further and they accept that 20 or 30 minute drive here in Edmonton. I mean, it's not Toronto. So they accept that commute um, as part of the package. So what does life look like in Blatchford in 15 or 20, 20 years? Like what are the benefits of living in a community like Blatchford and how does it look different than simply living in a suburb in the center of town? So how is Blatchford not a suburb with a downtown location? Well, I think the the built form and the, the way, I never mentioned this, we have custom zoning. So the, the way the interaction between the public and private space is going to be different. I always envisioned a town center. People ask, what was the inspiration for Blatchford? I wasn't part of the team when we hired the consultants that came up. But, you know, there's, there's lots of European models, kind of older cities that have this, you know, you're close to the street, you're interacting with each other. I, I like to tell the story when I make presentations that a, a year or so ago when I first started, my wife and I went to the grocery store, which was right by Blatchford, then Kingsway Mall. And then I made her come through the community as we were partially building the first stage. So it's already on, like it's already within a bunch of amenities that already exist. The suburban ones, those amenities that you described come eventually, but Blatchford from the beginning has them right outside the front door, including the schools, including access to kind of downtown and everything else. But 15 years from now, when the town center, like we, we're going to have a market area, it's going to be the concentration of retail. So it's, it is going to feel like the local coffee shops. It's going to be the very walkable, pedestrian, cycle-friendly. It's pedestrian first. That's the way we're designing it. A huge open space that if they want to get back to nature, there's storm ponds that provide walking trails. So there's choices to do whatever you want. And if you do need to go to other parts of the city, there's currently being built two LRT stations within the Blatchford community. You know, it's going to be a walk to those LRT stations or a short bike ride. It's pedestrian friendly. Mm-hmm. So there's there's fewer roads. You know, I was once doing a sustainable design exercise with colleagues and friends creating uh, cities for the future. And I was designing my cityscape with very few roads beyond the, you know, you'd need bare minimum roads for moving goods and moving into the apartments and townhouses. But in my imaginary city, people were going to have to park their cars on the periphery and walk or wheel themselves in. And other people in my group thought it was so radical, like something that would be impossible for Canadians to accept. So it's interesting that you mention European-style town centers, because in many ways, that's all I was really sketching was a town organized around pedestrian life as opposed to organized around the automobile. Um, people don't often think about it, but in Canada right now, all of our cities are built for cars, not for people, you know. But European cities, on the other hand, were built pre-automobile culture. So the streets are narrow. 
The amenities are close together. There's pedestrian culture. So in Blatchford, what does being a pedestrian-friendly neighborhood mean in practical, like in practical, tangible terms? Are there fewer roads, lower speed limits, fewer garages, less traffic? What does it mean to be a pedestrian-friendly neighborhood? Well, it only took me 20 plus years of development to figure out what that meant. It's you feel safe walking. Like we have wider sidewalks, we have bike paths, we have boulevards. I get people asking me sometimes what the speed limit going to be within Blatchford. I have two answers. It's not my job and it doesn't matter because you're not going to be able to drive fast through Blatchford. We're narrowing the carriageways of the roads. We still need fire trucks and buses and garbage trucks and all that. We've taken the standards of the day, reviewed them, changed them, altered them, customized them, so you can still have those vehicles going through, but we're not having the, the wide roadways that they would have in a suburban community, for example. We're putting our lens on if I want to walk from here to there, what, what's going to be the nicest experience for me? I also tell the story about one of my colleagues that used to live in a suburban community, mile and a half from a grocery store, wouldn't have thought of walking there because you're going down an arterial road, lots of cars whipping by you. That person moved closer to the city, lives by the university, still a mile and a half from the grocery store, doesn't think about driving. Like it can be really cold gets her wagon, puts on her hat, and you just dress properly, and you walk there and get your groceries and walk home. It's interesting, yeah. And I'm sure that this one podcast and my comments are not going to change 10 years worth of design, but I did read a really interesting article recently. I think it was in Michigan, where in the inner city, the streetlights were repossessed because Michigan was going bankrupt, and trucks literally just came in and removed the streetlights to pay the debt. So they organized a community project, and the community wanted to own the streetlights because they didn't ever want to have something like that happen again. And what they did after the consultations was to more than just replace the lights. They moved the focus of the streetlights away from the roads. People may not think about it much, but streetlights are there largely for automobile safety. And in the case of Michigan, also it's about racialized state surveillance of the black communities that live there. So the community named the project Solidarity, and when they took back ownership of the lighting, they moved lighting into the parks and into other places where people could actually congregate in the evenings instead of making sure that drivers can see where they're going when they're driving cars. And it became about strengthening community relationships, Solidarity, as they called it, as opposed to, you know, state surveillance of the community. And it's important to think about what infrastructure does in terms of creating or disrupting the shape of social life. And we really need to think about these things as we have an energy transition, right? In taking back the light and taking back the street, they took back the parks and the evenings and all of that. You've hit on a good point. Like in our, I've talked about our linear park a number of times, but we do have lighting within it. And Edmonton is, you know, a winter city. And in the winter, you go to work in the dark, you come home in the dark. So if you want to go out and use the open spaces, it has to feel safe. It has to be lit. We also have a storm pond in stage one with walkways around it. And those walkways are going to have lighting. The one thing I haven't talked about, we have a warming hut that people, again, you know, in the evenings can go in there. It's going to be a wood burning kind of warming hut that you can go in and warm up when you go skating or just using the open spaces with the light. I think that sounds beautiful. And hopefully a neighborhood like this is open to everybody. Because one of the things that I find really interesting is a lot of these ideas that I think are great for communities of the future, that maybe even sound a little too socialist oriented for some people, 
I've come to learn over the last number of years, they actually already exist for the wealthiest members of our society. So much of what we're describing here could also describe many gated communities in the U.S. I've literally seen people who live in these types of communities poo-poo these concepts without being self-reflective at all about the fact that they have many of these amenities at their disposal, right? Their shared backyard pool and neighborhood barbecue centers and their warming huts and all kinds of things, right? So so I hope that Blatchford as a community is going to be affordable and accessible to all Edmontonians, that everybody can somehow buy or rent or lived in sub, live in subsidized housing. You know, I love the fact that there's student housing for Nate's post-secondary students in Blatchford. But if you have any ideas about how everybody can become part of the Blatchford neighborhood, maybe you want to make a couple of comments about that now. Well, I think of like the, the variety of housing types, if nothing else, there's going to be something for everybody. I, I have a son who bought a condo in Oliver. So living right, right kind of in the middle of the city, it's affordable for him. There's obviously a wide range of condos within Oliver. Blatchford's going to have the same right now. We're building townhomes. Right now is planned the biggest thing you can own. But once we get to the apartment style buildings, there's zoning that's going to allow like up to 10 to 12 stories in certain parts of the community. The affordability obviously is going to be touched on and opportunity for everybody to live there is coming. I think we've had a great conversation, but I'm not letting you off the hook yet. I have one question that I like to ask all people that I interview, which is not what do you think life's going to look like in the future, but you know, what do you want it to look like? So I feel like you two get a cheat sheet, right? Because you've already seen all the plans for Blatchford. But what do you want from our cities of the future that are decarbonized, that are net zero, that are meeting climate targets? What do you want those communities of the future to look like? I, you know, COVID probably has sent me the message, you know, the social interaction, the places where you can see people. I, I tell lots of people, you know, when I go for my walks now, Stranger or not, if I see you on the street, you're probably in trouble because I'm going to talk your ear off. Maybe you go to the the local coffee shop when you're allowed to, and the barista is there listening to my story. So, a community where interaction like that, where there's a lot of social aspects, where there's opportunity to see my neighbors and friends, and that's like you said, Chi from Blatchford. That's what we're creating spaces where we want people to to feel comfortable and opportunities to interact with other people. What does the future look like in Christian Felsky's imaginary? Well, I, I don't know. I, have, I I had some time to think about it. I did like Tom's answer, and and it's about uh, a city which is active, which is cultural rich, right? Which which people can move quickly, not using the car. I think the the new city plan is is, is something worthy to to look into because it has this fifteen minutes district idea, right? I, I sure hope it's become it's going to come reality, right? Blackwood is one of those those districts, right? And and it's 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 a challenging piece, right? Because North American cities and again, I'm I'm you know they were built around the car, right? And it takes time, right? And it's 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 a it's an energy transition what we're talking about, and it's a daunting task. You you speak about the eight years or the nine years we have left in our carbon budget and. And it's a daunting task. The, the, the mountain seems to get bigger and bigger every year and we're not doing things. Yeah, it's 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 tough. But I, I like the opportunity to work at a project like Blatchford. Like I it's 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 immensely challenging, but it's so much fun. And every day we all go to work and we want to achieve the same thing. And and I do hope that that this 
will be an example or will be a, an opportunity to get these ideas into other areas like Bonnie Doom, the downtown, where we really tackle some of the biggest challenges we have right now right? around energy, around transportation, how we want to live, how we want to move, get away from the cars, right? Like it'll be tough, but I'm, I'm positive. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking to both of you. And I hope all of our listeners will check out Blatchford. It's a world-class neighborhood plan, but it's not a community until there are people actually living there. So we hope you'll check it out and check out all the other fantastic projects happening in the city of Edmonton. So thank you very much, uh, Christian and Tom, and have a wonderful day, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Just Powers podcast. Be sure to visit justpowers.ca to learn more about our ongoing projects, to access resources, and discover related content. To find out the latest on Blatchford, see blatchfordedmonton.ca slash news. Just Powers is made possible by support from Future Energy Systems Canada First Excellence Research Fund, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Cool Institute of Advanced Study, Campus Saint-Jean, the University of Alberta, and Alberta EcoTrust. This episode, like every episode, has been a team effort. It has been co-produced by myself, Sheena Wilson, Charlotte Tomasin, and Katie Lewandowski. It has been recorded and mixed by Charlotte Tomasin and Catlin W. Kuzik at Sublet Sound in Edmonton, Alberta.